What's up, everyone? Welcome to Wayfarers Christian Church. This is our weekly deep dive. So thank you that you uh, decided to tune in with us again today. We've got uh, uh, Nick Griffin in the studio, as always. Yeah, what's doing? up, everybody? Thank you guys <laughs> for tuning in. Not been a, uh, It's been a pretty, pretty chill week for me. Uh, we just got off of uh, a really fun uh, two-sermon series that I did on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, those are uh, going up live on the podcast. So uh, go ahead and tune into those. It's going to be great. Um, but yeah, we're, uh, we're still working through the Sermon on the Mount and, uh, we're going to be tackling more of the Beatitudes today. But before we do that, we've got our, uh, weekly quirky query section that we do. Um, so I guess I'll go ahead and let you, uh, jump into that, Nick, since, uh, uh, yeah. uh we, we asked you last time, so you get to ask first. For sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Again, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, this is our weekly deep dive. We just kind of take this opportunity to go a little bit deeper in some of the different things that we have been talking about in the sermons. And like Noah mentioned, we've been doing a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which he's done a couple of episodes on that has been really, really cool. But during this first segment, we like to, we just call it quirky queries. We like to ask each other some weird questions, some uh, oddball questions sometimes, but the whole purpose of it in our mind is just, we're trying to get to know each other better hopefully giving those of you that are tuning in and watching with us an opportunity to get to know us a little bit better. And um, we just think it's fun. We just like to do it because it's fun. <laughs> so I got a fun one for you all today. Right, no, all right. This is, a, this is um, maybe weirder than my usual questions. If you could be any kitchen appliance mm-hmm. or kitchen object, which would you be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um Hmm. I'll this answer. Is, I'll answer this, first this if you def- want a second to, this, yeah, to think about this, it. Yeah, this definitely is a quirky one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you better answer first because I'm gonna have to think through all the chick- uh, the kitchen appliances. I almost said chicken appliances. <laughs> fun. Oh, that'd be a weird one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the reason reason I thought this was a fun one um, is I know that you love cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're probably a lot more familiar in the kitchen than I am. So I'd be curious to think just through your thought process of like exactly <laughs> what kitchen so, appliance. So you I would need be. to explain why. Yeah, yeah you got to explain <laughs> why. So I'll give you mine. I would be a tea kettle. A uh, couple reasons for that. First, I just I love tea. I grew up drinking tea. That's mm-hmm. a big part of my family's um, culture. My family is from. Chile and South America, Chilean culture is very influenced by British culture, so they do tea all the time. And so I grew up with like a afternoon tea time every afternoon. Um, and so I like that connection just with my cultural family a little bit. Um, I, I like the I like tea because it has some of the cool like connotations around it, similar to coffee, something you drink. It's like a pleasure thing. You hang out and you drink tea it can bring you comfort but it doesn't have the same like raging like get stuff done productivity connotations to it that coffee does you know i feel like tea is a little more chill something you do to relax and talk over interesting ideas with people and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff but i think the biggest reason i you know you know me know i like to be uh i'm a hipster i like to be unique i like to be different from just the everyday people out there. And um, apparently I found out recently that it's only like 10% of 
American households that own a tea kettle. Whoa. Because <laughs> um, most people, if they drink tea, they just like put a tea bag in a mug and yeah, yeah, yeah. warm it up in the microwave or yeah, something yeah, yeah, like exactly, that, you know? Exactly. Like, so the yeah, idea of having a tea kettle is super rare, not common, and I like that. Hmm. Only, only the only the real hipsters know about the value of tea. That's fair. So huh. all those reasons, that's why I'm saying a tea kettle. Okay, yeah, I I think it's hard because part of me is like super like utility based. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be very useful in society. So like uh, I'm running through my head of like all the different options, and I want like to be used a lot. Like I don't want to be like a a Kitchen. A garlic press, yeah, that you garlic use press like that you once, use once. Like I want, I want to be used daily, you know, and like something that if it went missing in the house, you'd be like, "Where is this? I need it," you know, kind of thing. So that, like, I'm, I'm an Enneagram four, so like that's one of our big things is we want to be needed, uh, and so like I, I think that like I want to be something that like is used all the time, but at the same time, I want to be unique and different. You know, yeah. And so, how how can I come up with a kitchen appliance that's both like uniquely different than everything else, but also used all the time? And this uh-huh. is really, you know, I'm gonna have to go back to the one that I said a couple weeks ago, where it's that uh, hot water tower dispenser. Oh yeah. Because like no one in the no one really has those. You know, right. they they rarely just have like a hot water dispenser. It was. Rem- Remind me again. It's it was something from the coffee shop, right? Yeah. It was well, a, I bought it myself. I just right. bought it off of Amazon. But yeah, it's basically just a big five gallon container of hot water that you can just push a button and it immediately, so you don't have to microwave it. Right. Mm-hmm. I use it every day, but it's an item that you don't really see in anybody's kitchen. So I think that just fits the bill for both uh, nice. both those two. Uh. <laughs> I like it. It's not it's not like a an unnecessary gadget that you never use. Right. But it is uncommon. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't see people with hot water dispensers just, you know, hanging around. And the cool thing is I always use filtered water, so I just like fill it up with my Brita filter water. Mm-hmm. Um so it's never like water from the tap or anything like that. So yeah, I think I'll go with that one. But I like it. <laughs> So that was my quirky query. Yeah, that was that was really today. quirky. I'm gonna go for a more serious one just okay. to balance it out. Um, I think you've told me this story in bits and pieces, but uh, I don't think the world at large has heard this story. So uh, tell me uh, about the first time that you and Adrian uh, met and uh, yeah. went on a date. went on a date. Uh huh. So the fun part of that story is that it was a blind date. So like me and Adrian didn't know each other at all before our first date. Mm-hmm. So the very first time we even saw each other, we even met, even got to know each other was on our first date. Hmm. Um, we have a mutual friend who works here at the college that we're broadcasting from here at Mid-South Christian College. Her name is Jane Gibson. So shout out Jane. <laughs> um, she's really well known for setting people up. She set up like six different couples that have all ended up married. And so she... Uh, messaged me. I was I was helping to renovate Avenue Coffee before we had even got open. I was just like in there gluing some floor down or something like that. She texts me and she's like, hey, random question, but I know this girl that I think you'd be perfect for. Would you be interested in going on a date with her? And I was just like, usually no. Like usually I'm not going to say yes to a blind date, but because it was Jane that was asking, I was like, 
well, I know she's got a good track record, so <laughs> I'll give it a shot. And the other thing that helped was Jane was like, I already asked her, and she already said yes if you would say yes. So it was like a, it was like a real low risk situation where I just knew she already said yes. So she gave me her phone number. I called her Adrian up, and I just said, you know, it's kind of weird, but I was like, hey, do you want to get coffee somewhere? And so went to a coffee shop here in Memphis, and um. We wanted it to be like low key because we didn't know each other at all. So I wanted it. What to be coffee shop, by the way? Um, we went to Otherlands. Otherlands, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. There weren't there weren't many options back then. Uh, this was pre all of the coffee shops in town. Mm-hmm. So your options at the time were Cafe Eclectic, Otherlands, and Java Cabana. Mm. And so Otherlands was the least offensive of those. <laughs> And mostly I just thought it'd be a cool, is a big enough spot that we could like find a table. Yeah, 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 it's big. And so that's what we did. We just got some coffee and got a table and talked and it was awesome. We really connected, had a lot in common. Um, The thing I liked the most about Adrienne too was that she was like actually conversation, like it was like a real conversation. It wasn't just like pleasant surface level talk you know yeah. it wasn't just like uh how are you doing fine how are you mm-hmm. doing fine you know like it was it was more of a engaging and interesting conversation we just talked about our families and our faith and all kinds of different things and i was pretty convinced at that point mm. um it took several more months to convince adrian <laughs> but uh <laughs> the first date was great and so I mean, I don't even think we ended the first date before I was already asking her. I was like, hey, we should do this again, right? <laughs> so she was like, yeah, sure. So I think we went to a concert on our second date, which was fun as well. But yeah, that was the first time we met. Oh. <laughs> so I figured I'd figured I'd ask that one because like uh, the, it's a fun. I don't feel like anyone knows story the story. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. No, that's good. We got to we're trying. Like I said, we're we're trying to use this early segment just. <laughs> more opportunities for those of you that have been tuning in to get to know us a little bit better. Um, and we've talked about before, we're hoping to start having some, some guests on the show too. Yeah. I'm excited so for that. I'm hopeful that this segment at the beginning will be an, uh, a cool opportunity to get to know the guests we have on the show a lot of times too. So just be on the lookout for that in those future episodes, those future guests. I think it'll be something that's really cool. Something really interesting. For today, though, we have um, a continuation of the episode that we started last week. We were, mm-hmm. um, as w- I mentioned earlier, Noah's been doing this series on the Sermon on the Mount. He just did two different um, sermons sort of introducing the series. And uh, the most the, the famous introduction to the Sermon on the Mount yep. is the Beatitudes. Um, 
which is this series of statements Jesus makes where he lists out the kind of people who are uh, blessed. And the whole point that's interesting about it is that they're not the kind of people you'd expect. They're definitely not the people that the Jews would have expected to Mm. be blessed. And um, the, the, the list is, is very famous and something that you're probably familiar with if you've grown up in church. But what's difficult about those things that we grow up in, with in church is that it is tough sometimes to know what that really looks like in a not theological way. We um, Lots of times, the example I use all the time is like the word grace. Grace is a word mm. that doesn't get used very much in everyday life. So we all know of it as a religious term, but like in everyday life, what mm. does grace mean? And the Beatitudes can be similar, I think. You know, we, we think, oh yeah, blessed are the meek, blessed are the uh, poor in spirit, and things like that. But as far as understanding what that really means, I think sometimes we need a little bit of help. So what's been cool is for these last couple of weeks, what Noah's done is he has been uh, pulling out other passages, also from the Bible, that give us examples of people who would fit into these categorizations of people that are blessed by God. Because I think part of what we're trying to show is that it's not like God just decided with Jesus onward that these are the kind of people that he would favor. Um, Jesus is kind of just informing us of something that should have been clear to you if you had been reading the scriptures all Mm -hmm. along, which is just that these are the kind of people that are blessed by God, and they may not be the kind of people that you expect. So it's been cool to kind of go through these stories of examples of these people, and I'm hopeful that they're helping me, and hopefully I'm help, hoping that they're helping you all as well to uh, get a, a more full, real-life picture of exactly what the types of people Jesus describes um, are. So where did we end last week? We so were, we um, ended last week on uh, the those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, and uh, you— you talked a lot about that, which I thought was amazing. Right. We just really covered all the issues um, related to that. And I read the story from uh, the uh, woman uh, that is asking a unjust judge for mm-hmm. justice um, and just continues to ask for uh, justice, even though the unjust judge will not give it to her. And just through repeated asking of it, uh, eventually the judge just is like, I want to get rid of this person. I'll do it. Even though he's not doing it for moral reasons, he's just doing it to get rid of her, but she does get her justice as a result. And so I felt like that was a great story to sort of, uh, end on. And yeah, you, you, you knocked it out of the park when, yeah. when we were talking about it. So no, it, it is something that I've thought a lot about here recently. And, um, one other thing that I did want to add to it too, because I have become also very convinced that, a part of what it means to live the Christian life is to sometimes forego the justice that is due us. You know, mm. sometimes you, you, you sort of say, I'm not going to take revenge. I'm going to let God be the one who avenges and I, I'm, I'm not going to pay back an eye for an eye and yeah. things like that. But I think what's so incredible about the fact that Jesus mentions this in the Beatitudes is that he's being very clear. Like, even if I'm asking you to turn the other cheek, even if I'm asking you to take up your cross and value others above yourself. That doesn't mean that God is no longer a God who cares about justice. And in fact, if you're one of those people who just cares so much about it, that it's like food and water, you just hunger and thirst for that Mm -hmm. justice, then you are exactly the kind of person that God is focused on. And, and, and that's a good thing. You know, even, even if you're turning the other cheek, even if you are following the way of Jesus, um, 
the way of Jesus is still a way for people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. So what's the next one following that? All right. Yeah, let, let's go ahead and get started. So uh, I love how he lays out the Beatitudes with the next one because uh, it the last one, like I said, was justice. And this one is uh, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And if you've done any reading in the Bible, you know that the concept of mercy and the concept of justice seem to be at odds a lot of the time. Uh, and I honestly think that he purposely puts mercy right after uh, justice to sort of give you the other side of that coin. Um, so the passage that I ended up picking um, for uh, this one is also a parable uh, that Jesus told in the New Testament. And I just think that this is one of, this is still probably one of the most foundational parables for how I live my life. Um, and uh, is, I think meant to put a little bit of fear into us. Um, so I'll go ahead and start. This is the parable of the unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times. Uh, 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you're, you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Hmm. That is definitely a difficult one mm -hmm. parable that I, uh, think of often myself. So, um, do you want to start off with just your general thoughts on it? And, uh, uh, we can kind of talk about it then. Absolutely. Well, I think the reason I think about this one a lot is just because it is the flip side to the hunger and thirst for righteousness mm -hmm. idea that um, I, I think is a good balance that does need to be emphasized often. Um, we like to it you know it's it's easy it feels good to focus on righteousness and justice sometimes that's something that like feels satisfying to see a someone who's done wrong get what is owed them you know like it's it's very satisfying it feels very good um what does not feel as good is forgiving somebody and being merciful 
and and forgiving the thing the debt that's owed them foregoing the punishment that they deserve all that kind of stuff like if if i wrong you and then you sort of waive the the consequences of that against me that doesn't feel as good it's not as satisfying as like the the justice that you could get if i adequately got what i deserved on the other hand though that feels great for me (laughs) as the one who is forgiven right um that does feel really good and so I think what's really interesting about this is that I see Jesus sort of leveraging how good it feels to be forgiven as a way, as a force that it should help us forgive other people. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to ask for justice. We're all like, yeah, no, absolutely. I want people to get what they deserve. I want people to, I want wrongdoers to get what what's coming to them. It's a lot harder to ask people to be merciful. Yeah. Um, and, what what we really see here is is Jesus sort of leveraging that joy that we get when when we are forgiven and showing us a way where we can use that to forgive others because i think the big thing about this obviously the big point of this whole parable is that the bigger debt was that the one that the the servant first owed you know that that huge debt that he owed to the master he's forgiven a really, really big debt. And then he turns around and tries to like hold up a, another servant for a much smaller. Debt. Yeah. And the whole point is just that we should be always aware of how much we have been forgiven of mm-hmm. and how much mercy we have received and the sort of joy and pleasure that we get from that mercy that we have received. Um, should motivate us to also forgive other people. So that's kind of how I've always looked at it. Yeah. Is that what you th- have thought as you've. Yeah. Yeah. So, this? so I, I definitely think along those terms, I, I think that, um, one of the things that I've had a hard time with is exactly what you're talking about, which is the paradox between upholding and seeking righteousness, justice, right. And also, um, uh, being merciful to people that ask for it. Right. And Mm -hmm. I do believe, unfortunately, this happens many, a couple times in scripture. I do believe that we are sometimes required to forgive people, even though they don't ask for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, You can look at examples of uh, uh, Jesus on the cross, forgiving his very tormentors, even though they never ask for it, um, they say uh, he uh, he tells them on the cross, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know not what they do." Mm-hmm. And then there's another account in Acts where Stephen is literally being stoned to death by the Jews, and he prays to God, "Lord, forgive them for the sin." Um, so those are two examples in which uh, we have our Lord and Savior and Stephen both um, asking for the forgiveness of people that. Uh, never asked, even acknowledged never, that they did never, never acknowledged that they did wrong. Yeah. Um, and you do have to reconcile that with, um, your understanding of justice. Right. Um, because I do think in our culture today in particular, we want, like you said, we want justice. We want things to be done right. And you can see this portrayed in films a lot right now. A lot of films, uh, the adventures are all based off of this is that when Thanos, snaps his fingers and everybody disappears um the whole point of in game is revenge is the 
getting justice for that act. And in the first 10 minutes of the movie, they behead Thanos. <laughs> like, yeah. It's a really big uh, sort of uh, glorification of justice in that moment um, where they, they, you know, enact this justice. Um, and I don't think uh, you find that... Uh, the side of mercy is much displayed in film today. Um, it used to be a little bit more in, in some of the older films, but right now there has been this turn where your main character is generally a character that gets things done by exacting justice and not by being merciful, right? Um, and so I, in my own life, have always felt that it's a paradox in terms. Like there are some situations where you call out justice and that there are other situations where you call on mercy and we've talked about this concept a little bit about um how in scripture uh it talks about being wise and being able to discern which situation demands which action right Mm -hmm. um and wisdom is something that you actually call for and pray to god for to be able to give you um the right uh Knowledge, But I will say that uh, in my own life, one of the things I've always felt has been if I were to err on one side of this fence between the justice of uh, and seeking justice on people and then also being merciful, I would rather err on the merciful side because this is exactly how I am going to be judged as well. That's kind of the whole point about the parable. And this is blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Right. And so it's almost as if God will judge you as harshly as you judge other people, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so if you tend to seek justice for other people, um, and you and you are very justice mindsetted. Just recognize the fact that God will be very justice mindsetted with you, <laughs> you know. And if you tend to be a little bit more merciful with people, uh, just recognize that God will probably be more merciful with you. And I don't think that that is wrong in any sense. I'm just saying that uh, God tends to deal with people how you deal with people you know like he tends to deal with you how you deal with others um and whatever kind of criteria you give on people is generally the criteria he puts on you Mm -hmm. um and i think that has always made me want to side a little bit more on the mercy side um just because i know how i act and uh, i know I, i require a lot of mercy in my own life um and yeah that that those have that has always been my driving force for sort of wrestling with this sort of paradox that we have between justice and mercy does that make sense absolutely for sure it's uh I, i've never noticed what the point you made about how they're located side by side mm-hmm. you know um and one thing i did notice just as you were reading through it was just the way that um the juxtaposition is between people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not necessarily people who judge rightly, but people who desire yeah. to have righteousness. But what it is is people who are merciful. So mm. I think the the point I get out of that lots of times is that we need to be like that woman who is asking the judge to bring justice, mm-hmm. not necessarily like Batman where we go and seek justice on our own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But when it comes to mercy, that's something that we're responsible for ourselves. We are mm. the ones who can be merciful. And um, I think that's a good application of that. Lots of times in our own lives, may, you know, that's something we actually have control over. We can be merciful. Lots of times we don't have control over justice and judgment and righteousness. And so that can be a time where we just take the position of those who plead for it. Yeah. And that can kind of be the difference between those lots of times. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right. So let's move on then. Um, this one is, uh, I would say the most interesting of the, of the Beatitudes, mainly because this phrase doesn't appear in the Bible a lot. Hmm. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the word pure. Um, but then I'll kind of, and then we'll go right into the passage because, uh, I didn't pick a necessarily a story with this one. Uh, I ended up picking a passage from the Psalms that I thought really kind of clarified some things with this. So, um, this is blessed are the poor in heart for they will seek God. Uh, not poor. Sorry, I said poor, but I meant pure. pure. <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart, right. <laughs> um, for they will seek God. Um, pure is an interesting word, and you've actually probably done some study on this, so you could probably chime in here too. But um, pure, as much as I can tell from this word, doesn't necessarily mean morally pure, as mm-hmm. much as it means like clean or unclean. And there's a lot of uh, Jewish understanding of uh, clean and unclean in the Old Testament. Um, right. There were animals that they touched that could were considered unclean that would then make them unclean. Um, and so a lot of what I'm reading in this is not necessarily about um, uh, the morals of a person, but a lot more about uh, their status as a clean or unclean heart, right? Um, is there anything you... Do you have any... Things oh, you I could talk about that. this for a yeah, while. Yeah, I figured. I figured. <laughs> we, we won't go into it uh, <laughs> just for for y'all's sake because this could be a whole other deep dive. Um, and I wasn't just prepared ahead of time. I, I've never noticed this before, Noah. This was a really this is a really interesting point you just brought up. Um, the Noah's mentioned it. I've been personally studying this topic of clean and unclean in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and everything for a couple of years now. At this point. And so I had never noticed that that was the word that was used here. Lots of times the English translations kind of hide it, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but while you were talking, I just tried to look it up here on my phone. And yeah, it is. Uh, the, the the word pure there is the Greek word katharsos, mm-hmm. which means clean. Um, and it is the word that for the Jews and in the New Testament is the word that's most often used for... Um, clean and unclean animals and food as they relate to the Levitical law. You know, the most common one people are familiar with is pigs. You know, the Jews didn't eat pork Mm -hmm. because pork was unclean. It was a catharsis is what they say. You put that a in front of the word and it means the unversion of that, the opposite of that. So catharsis is clean. A catharsis is unclean. And in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, they would call that animal ah, catharsos. And so it is interesting here that Jesus is saying, blessed are the catharsos, the pure in heart specifically, mm-hmm. he mentions. And what this makes me think of is uh, another passage we spent some time talking about uh, 
weeks ago in our deep dive where we were talking about this difficult passage where Jesus brings up the unforgivable sin. Mm. And he talks a lot about the importance of your words. Um, and if you look at kind of the, the, the sort of greater context, actually, it may not be in this passage. I may be, I may be telling you wrong. Actually, okay. uh, d- 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 don't take that uh, completely. There, there is a particular passage. It may be that unforgivable sin one. It, it may actually be a different passage in Mark, now that I'm thinking about it. But what's happening in the context is that the, um, the Pharisees are upset with Jesus because his disciples don't wash their hands before mm. eating. Uh, food, which is a sort of update to the Levitical law that mm. the um, Jews had been practicing at that time. It's not something that's ever listed directly in the Old Testament law, but the Mark Jews, seven, it's the Mark, Mark one. seven. Mm-hmm. So, so they had they had become so um, sort of specific about avoiding unclean things that they were worried that if they like touched something unclean like touched a a pig or something and then went to eat even if it was clean food even if it was like steak or something that's not on the unclean list in the old testament the fact that they had touched that pig before and now touched the food meant that it was unclean now and that they were they were um unclean at that moment and let me just pull up the actual passage because there's a really i think there is a really interesting point jesus makes here um, I'll just read it here. It's Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And that word specifically is this idea of like common, defiled by the uncleanness, so mm-hmm. to speak. And he replied, and this is where he brings up the heart, which is interesting. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God, and you are holding on to human traditions. And then he talks about how they're like really specific about which, um, which things they... Uh, which Old Testament laws they follow and which ones they don't. He talks about how they're just kind of picking and choosing at lots of stuff and not understanding what's important to them. But if you skip down to verse 14, Jesus said again, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. He says it pretty common. The disciples are confused. They're like, what does that mean? That's a common theme in Mark. <laughs> the disciples have no idea what's going on. And Jesus responds in verse 18, Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can actually defile them? Nothing can make them koinos from the outside. For it doesn't go into their heart, but it goes into their stomach and then out of their body. Um, and he went on, What comes out from a person is what defiles them. For it is within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside a person, from their heart. And that's what defiles a person. And so he makes this really big point of just showing that the, the, 
the real thing you have to worry about being clean is your heart. Yeah. And the types of things that can make your heart unclean are these things he lists, you know, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. Those are the things that dirty up your heart. Hmm. And out of that person's heart, then that sort of uncleanness will uh, emanate. And so Jesus is contrasting, I think, in this uh, Beatitudes, yeah. saying, don't be those kind of person. Be mm-hmm. the people who are pure in heart or clean in their heart and um, free from all of these things that would make you unclean. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And I think uh, the passage I had selected is actually from Psalm 119. Uh, and it's, we're not going to read the whole psalm because it's the longest psalm in the Bible. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful psalm, though. If you if you get some time, go ahead and read it. 119? It's, yeah, 119. Yeah, it's actually set up um, as an acrostic, Hebrew-wise, so that every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, every line of the psalm starts with that same letter. So it's really cool. Uh, you go all the way through the ABCs of the Hebrew alphabet. And so if you're trying to learn Hebrew, just p- pull up uh, uh, Psalm 119 and you'll see like the nice. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit kind of stuff. It's really cool. Um, but I'm going to read the Beit section of the psalm uh, because it's talking about purity in particular and talking exactly about what you just said about following um, the law. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that came from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And so that's really the, I think, kind of summarizes what this pure in heart person would be like, right? And you can see why I chose this is it's way more focused on following the statutes and the laws of Torah um, and following these clean and unclean laws even. But you can see even in the Old Testament, he's focusing on following these things from the heart first. Um, and, and that's, I think, what the Jews missed. You know, they thought it was all uh, about action and not about heart. Um, and I think that they really have, uh, taken it to an extreme by the time we get to these beatitudes where, um, you know, they really don't care about what, uh, they're doing and why they're doing it. They're just doing it because it sets them apart from Romans, you know? Um, and I think that that's, um, really where Jesus brings this beatitude home. Um, especially, you know, like the ending of their promise is that, um, you know, like I said, each of the Beatitudes has like a little bit of an ending where they all receive something as a reward for what they're doing. And the reward for them is they'll get to see God. Um, they'll become so holy that they get to be in the presence of God and actually see him. And that's a big theme in the old Testament is who can see God, you know, cause God is so holy that a sight would kill you, you know? And so for, uh, this, these pure in heart, they actually get to see him almost like Moses did, 
um, in a story that we won't go into today. But uh, yeah, it's 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 very uh, driven by that. So I think that I, I just thought that that would be a, a good way, kind of also a break from all the stories that we're doing. And you can just see uh, in the psalmist, you can see someone writing from a perspective in which he does feel pure, and this is what pure people act like. So hopefully that helps. All right, um, so we're going to go ahead and move on to the next one. Um, this is one that uh, I feel like I wish we had Adrian on for because I, mm. I, I see Adrian as like really, really uh, living this out well. But um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the called children of God. Um, the passage I picked for this one uh, is in Exodus 32. This is going to be a long one, um, but uh, I think it's worth it. Um, we're also going to go back to Moses again because Moses uh, just oftentimes, anytime I've looked at the Beatitudes, I can just see a lot of how Moses has lived out a lot of mm. these in his life. So we're going to go back to Moses for this one. But this is the golden calf story. So some of you may know this. Um, I will confess that I knew this story, but I only knew the first half of it and did not know the latter half. And we're going to focus on the latter half today. But I'm going to give you the whole story just for context's sake. Um, when the people saw that Moses was long, uh, was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for the, uh, this fellow Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the a calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and go up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of the Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." But no, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was the with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth turn from your fierce anger relent and do not bring disaster on your people remember your servants abraham isaac and israel to whom you swore by your own self i will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and i will give your descendants all this land i promised them and it will be their inheritance forever then the lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened and yeah yeah the, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and end there so uh this passage is pretty well known uh the uh people of israel uh 
sin and making this calf instead of worshiping Yahweh, even though the very Ten Commandments that Moses is getting say not to. It's almost as if, like, even before they even get the law that they're supposed to be following, they break it. Um, And uh, Moses has to intercede for this people um, because uh, he's going to destroy them. He's going to wipe them out. And uh, Moses plays this role of this peacemaker here between uh, God and the Israelites, uh, essentially asking for their uh, forgiveness. And he doesn't. You notice he doesn't use any language of uh, them doing good or anything like that. He doesn't try and placate it. Like no, they they messed up royally. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two reasons he gives for why. Um, God should spare them as one you promised that you would be with them and that you would be their God. So he's calling back to God being faithful and he makes an argument for the faithfulness of God. Um, and then two, uh, he says, other nations will think you're a bad God if you wipe them out. Um, because you know, like you, they will think that if you do wipe them out. Oh, you weren't actually powerful enough to save them. And so your reputation is on the line as well as a God among all the other nations. Uh, and those are the two arguments that Moses gives and they're pretty fair arguments. Um, they and God relents as a result of, of this, this has been a problematic one for a lot of people just theologically, like how can God change his mind? You know, all of these different things. We're not going to get into that today. <laughs> um, but, uh, overall, the uh, thing I wanted to bring out was just Moses's ability to make really good arguments that calm the anger of God down, which I, I, I don't know if I could do in that situation. <laughs> like, like I was just wowed by his ability to be able to do this. Um, and yeah, I just think that there are some people in life that have this gift to be able to, even in the midst of an angry person that's justfully angry, they're able to uh, tone that down and to give good arguments for why you shouldn't go through with your wrath and with your rage. Um, and yeah, I, I just think this is a beautiful passage that shows that. Yeah. This one's especially countercultural for our society right now, mm-hmm. because I don't think our society values peacemakers. What, what yeah. we like are people who uh, can dunk on other people <laughs> in the comment section. <laughs> I want someone who's going to drop the mic, kill it with their arguments, completely eviscerate you, make you look like an idiot, and walk mm. away, making the situation even worse. And I, I've always uh, personally str- uh, tried to be the person who is a peacemaker myself. And I, I agree with you. I do wish Adrian could be here because I think she's one of these people who's great at actually living this out as far as being a peacemaker in her own life. And uh, I think that's definitely a, a, a counter-cultural opposite of what the society is doing thing that we as Christians can really lean into. But, you know, it's not important about who has the better arguments, who's better at just, like, eviscerating other people with their logic. It's it's not about dunking on other people. <laughs> it's, uh, it's about bringing peace, and I think that's something that is sorely needed. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, so we're going to move on to the last one here. And uh, I 
thought that it would be appropriate instead of trying to go to an Old Testament for this one, I figured that we'd just read a lot of the sufferings of Jesus um, in his crucifixion scenes because I think that this one just, I don't think a story matches this better than Jesus himself living this one out. So uh, the last one is, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to drop us right into right after Jesus, Judas betrays him. He's about to um, hit to the Sanhedrin. And I'm going to read for a while just because I, I think um, sometimes I, it's been a long time since I've read the crucifixion scenes. And uh, I just think that we all need a refresher on that every now and then. We are getting close to Easter. I know it's a couple months away, but uh, it's just helpful sometimes yeah. to have that memory. So um, here we go. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? I'm going to skip the bit about uh, Peter's denial and just kind of move uh, move on here. Uh, this is in uh, chapter 27. Uh, he is now before Pilate. Uh, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barsabbas, uh, Barabbas, who, when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, 
crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to be crucified. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, You who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and he will believe and we will believe in him he trusts in god let god rescue him now if he wants him for he said i am the son of god in the same way the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him from noon until three in the afternoon darkness came over all the land about three in the afternoon jesus cried out in a loud voice ali ali lemma sabachthani which means my god my god why have you forsaken me when some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Like I said, pretty long, but I figured the whole context was necessary for, for that one. So, um, Absolutely. And it is very appropriate that this is the way that Jesus ends this discourse on the Beatitudes, on the types of people that are blessed. He he ends by specifically focusing in on the fact that those who are persecuted and those who suffer are the ones that are blessed. Yep. Um, because that is the the direction that his life is heading in towards. And um, 
the direction that the lives of many of his future followers are also going to follow. Um, we see it happen almost immediately with the church in Acts. Um, these very same high priests that are questioning Jesus and his crucifixion are the very same ones that try to beat and flog the apostles to get them to quit preaching about Jesus and his mm. resurrection. And so that promise of blessing, even in the midst of suffering, is something that was immediately put to the test yeah. uh, for those early Christians. Um, and I've always been really impressed by the fact that those uh, apostles, when they went through that suffering, it says that they go away rejoicing. Yeah. And it says that they go away happy because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And, you know, it doesn't say so in the passage, but I can imagine that these words of Jesus, blessed are those who uh, are persecuted on my sake, are are going through their heads. their heads as they are being whipped and beaten and as they are leaving, rejoicing. Because I think they really believe that. They really believe that they were blessed for having to go through that. Yeah. Yeah, every time I read this, I just, you know, it it, it hits you differently every time. And uh, uh, I have this kind of ritual where every Easter I watch The Passion um, because I don't think you see a film that uh, depicts the goriness and the violence of the crucifixion as well as The Passion of the Christ does. As much as you may have disagreements with Mel Gibson, I certainly do. It's just, you know, as far as a film goes... Um, and what crucifixion was life. There's no film that comes close to depicting it. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, uh, when you see, uh, him saying here, you know, who knows when he said this three years before, maybe, um, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's, it's like, it's almost like this like little foretaste of what's to come um uh, for him and his life and uh, you know uh, I, I i keep plugging this because i think it's such a good um story but mm-hmm. uh the chosen right now is uh, doing season 2 and they're going to go all the way through um and do eight seasons of the life of christ and uh, the director is gone on numerous times eight seasons eight seasons yeah oh, okay. uh, and the director has gone on numerous times saying that uh i think it's season six or seven which will be the crucifixion season and um none of the actors none of none of them are looking forward to filming that that season mm-hmm. because uh it's it's going to be the most brutal of anything and especially how they've set everything up. Um, they have a lovely episode where Jesus is like hanging out with children and it's beautiful. And it's just, you know, the, who, how they are depicting Jesus in this show is just, um, you just really relate to him as a human. And, uh, it's just, uh, man, it's just going to be an emotional moment when we get to that season, uh, in, in the chosen, cause it's just, it's awful. Um, and, and so, you know, I just felt like, you know, ending there seemed like the best, best because there is hope in this blessedness that in going through that, um, there is hope of resurrection. There is hope of new life. Um, there is hope that, um, God will be with those people and specifically favors those people. So, yeah, absolutely. And, um, that, idea is something that we think is really important for Christians to always keep at the forefront of their minds so that when we do go through sufferings, 
we are not the kind of people who moan and complain, mm. but are rather the people who can really see it for the blessing that Jesus says that it is. Yeah. But that's a hard teaching, as are a lot of the teachings of Jesus. They're very hard, very difficult, very counterintuitive. And so that's what we see in a lot of the Sermon on mm-hmm. the Mount, is we see Jesus really laying out the vision that he is laying out for his followers and his disciples. So we're going to be continuing that series this Sunday. I'm going to be back at it uh, myself on <laughs> back Sunday. on the pulpit uh, <laughs> or lack. Noah thereof. gave me a really fun one to, to <laughs> come back on <laughs> um, where we're going to be talking about Jesus's claims that he is not in fact abolishing the law, um, but rather fulfilling it. So, I think there's a lot of really, really interesting, really cool stuff in there that really helps us understand the whole of the New Testament, especially. Mm. I think if we don't get Jesus's words right in that part, we can really misunderstand a lot of what Paul and John and Peter are saying and other points in time in the New Testament. So it's one of those foundational things that I think is really important to get. Mm. So I'd encourage you to tune in this Sunday. We'd love to see you there. Sunday evening, seven o'clock right here, Facebook, YouTube, wherever it is that you're tuning in from. We would love to see you there. We will see you all then. See you guys. Bye.